the management, international operations and bilateral international development is entitled Public-Private Partnerships in Foreign Aid, Leveraging U.S. Assistance for Greater Impact and Sustainability. Only in the Senate can we come up with a title for a meeting that long, but uh, <laughs> I think it's very important. Um, Senator Kane and I and, and Senator Kuhn has, uh, and Senator Isaacson all have a great heart for this and other members, we've talked about this. Um, I'm looking forward to the testimony and the interaction today. I'd like to begin by welcoming our witnesses, uh, Associate Administrator Eric Postel of USAID. And um, uh, Mr. Postel, I'd like to publicly thank you. I know the State Department uh, made an accommodation to have a partnership conversation today, and it's greatly appreciated. I think it's very appropriate, but thank you. Uh, Daniel Rundy of um, CSIS and Michael Goldsman of Coca-Cola. Thank you guys for being here. Look forward to your testimony. We're here today to discuss uh, an issue that I find very important, how we can use private sector and NGOs to serve as a force multiplier for limited taxpayer dollars in foreign assistance. Foreign aid accounts for less than 1% of the federal budget of the United States. And official development assistance worldwide only makes up 20% of resource flows into developing countries. With that said, as Ranking Member Kane and I are both members of the Budget Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee, we have a unique perspective on how our global security crisis and our fiscal crisis are intertwined. Even though foreign aid is less than 1% of the federal budget, I keep, uh, that in the, keep that in perspective in the fact that in our current fiscal situation, every dollar we spend on, on the State Department and USAID technically in the United States is borrowed. And so it, it behooves us to be very responsible about that in terms of how we invest it. And I think this leverage that we get, this natural le leverage with the partnerships is extremely important today given the needs around the world. That's not to say we shouldn't continue to be more philanthropic and more and more philanthropic. We're the most philanthropic nation in the world today, but in an environment of limited taxpayer dollars, we've got to seek ways to find partners to help carry the load. And that's why our three witnesses are here today to discuss public-private partnerships in foreign assistance. And as a clerical note, I'm simply going to refer to public-private partnerships as partnerships. We have a bet with my staff that I can't say that three times in a row. <laughs> So we're going to call it PPP, and that's not purchasing power parity. It's uh, public-private partnerships today to make it easier on all of us. But thank you for being here. These partnerships are uh, by no stretch a new idea in foreign assistance. We've seen USAID and other agencies work with nonprofit NGOs since the early 70s. However, in the 21st century, a new world of public-private engagement and development has emerged, a new model marked by common objectives, joint planning, mutual resource contributions, and shared risk. I'm eager to hear from the USAID today as the primary U.S. agency promoting international development, who's been a leader on partnerships for development since the establishment of the Office of Global Development Alliance in 2001. I also look forward to hearing from Mr. Rundy about <clears throat> who not only served in that very office of GDA in the last administration, but now studies uh, development issues of the, uh, for the think tank perspective at CSIS. And to also look forward to hearing from Coca-Cola, a company with distinguished history of partnership programs with USAID and other partners around the world, also who has launched dozens of programs and projects with USAID just since 2002. Today, I hope we can get at some critical issues, some of which will be brought out by the questions and in your testimony, but I hope we'll talk about, uh, you know, what are the benefits to, to both business community and to the, the government of public-private partnerships and to the developing countries around the world? How can we further leverage these partnerships uh, as we go forward? What can businesses do in foreign assistance and development that the U.S. government cannot? 
How do such partnerships benefit the American economy and jobs, as well as the receiving countries? And how can we ensure appropriate congressional oversight of these partnership programs? I think more than anything else, if we look at the State Department mission uh, and, and so forth, um, we know that a developing world is a safer world. And so I think this public-private partnership idea is something that we've got to continue to get better at. You guys are the experts. We look forward to it. Uh, with that, let me turn it over to Ranking Member Senator Tim Kaine. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks to the witnesses and to all who are in attendance. I'll say to the witnesses, one of the great things about coming during the summer, especially to testify, is you get a chance to um, inspire altruistic young people. You know, the, the fellows and interns that we have who work on our offices, especially during the summer, love hearings like this, and the ones that come are the ones who are really interested in this topic. So in addition to educating us, uh, we've got some folks here in the audience who I know are really excited to hear what you have to say. The, the, the world of global development has just changed so dramatically, probably in the last half century. Um, global development aid was largely an, uh, a function of official governmental funding, and so the overwhelming percentage of aid was direct government funding into aid accounts. Um, and yet we've seen a tremendous growth, both in the philanthropic NGO sector as a provider of, uh, of global aid, but also the private sector through foreign direct investment. Research materials that we had for this hearing have repeated a statistic I've seen a number of times, that foreign aid from donors, state donors such as the United States, makes up less than 20% of the resource flows into developing countries in 2014. And the remaining 80% is comprised of foreign direct investment, private grants, philanthropy, market term flows, and remittances sent by people who live abroad who are remitting dollars back home. And that's great because it's a way to extend the investments that are made to help the developing uh, world be more and more successful. But it also poses some challenges. Uh, challenges of coordination, making sure that we're not duplicating efforts in some areas and then leaving big gaps in others. In Virginia, I'm a, I have been a big believer in the public-private partnership model where there's kind of an intentionality and an explicit focus in bringing public and private partners together to tackle projects with well-defined sort of expectations about what everybody brings to the table. We've done that in Virginia and transportation and other projects, but but certainly, especially in this new world of global development aid, there isn't any reason that we shouldn't explore this model as well. And in fact, it, it is being done in the global development world. And the, and the question is, how can we help it be done better without getting in the way or, or putting too much kind of bureaucratic structure on top of it that would make it uh, inflexible or unable to meet the needs that we see all over the, the world. We've got great witnesses today, and we've got a number of members of this committee who have been very focused on this because of their own experiences living in the developing world, and this matters deeply and personally to a number of members of the committee. So I, I thank the chair for calling this hearing and you for participating and look forward to asking good questions. Well, thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, now we'll introduce our witnesses in the order in which they'll speak. Uh, we'd appreciate if you keep your testimony at about five minutes. Uh, and again, as just a, a managing the time, we're, we're going to probably have a vote called about 3.30. That's not a hard stop for us, but uh, we'll be needing to sort of move along. Um, first, we have Associate Administrator for the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, Eric Postel. Mr. Postel has confirmed by the Senate in March 2011 as the Assistant Administrator for the Bureau of Economic Growth, Education, and Environment. Since May 2015, he's also served concurrently as Associate Administrator 
Mr. Postel serves as the agency's coordinator for the Government-Wide Partnership for Growth Program. Mr. Postel brings more than 25 years of private sector experience working in emerging markets to his position at USAID. He previously, previously worked as a vice president at Citibank Tokyo. Mr. Postel, we look forward to your, your comment. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane, um, and members of the committee. Thank you very much for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I'm grateful for the tremendous support that you have shown the United States Agency for International Development and for this opportunity to discuss our approach to these public-private partnerships. As um, you alluded to, today donors such as USAID are basically the minority partners in developing countries. In addition to the numbers you cited about our share, on top of those uh, different categories, such as foreign direct investment, just the domestic resources of companies in these countries, as well as the domestic revenues of the governments completely swamps all of these things. And within this shifting landscape, partnerships are central to our work in achieving our mission. In fact, it's embedded in our mission statement, the second word, we partner to end extreme poverty and promote resilient democratic societies while advancing our security and prosperity. And our role will continue to evolve from that of being a funder alone. We're increasingly embracing our role as convener, facilitator, risk mitigator, and empowering new and non-traditional partners to join the effort. As you know so very well, there's a rich landscape of organizations of all shapes and sizes with which we partner to enhance our impact and ensure lasting results, whether faith-based groups, higher education institutions, NGOs, and the private sector. We have a long history across multiple administrations of engaging the private sector for development. We have, since the early years, worked on private sector development and competitiveness in the countries themselves through programs designed to improve the business enabling environments. But in the late 1990s, we began to more proactively engage the private sector as true partners. Today, we're focusing on those instances where business interests and development interests align. When they don't, we don't partner, but when they do, that's the opportunity. Walmart uh, executives know that educating women and girls is a smart investment in their future workforce and their future customer base, just as we know that investing in girls' education has improved development results. When, they, when the interests don't align, though, then we shouldn't pursue the partnerships. And as always, all of our partnerships adhere to the safeguards we have in place to protect against misuse of funds and other challenges. One of the ways we partner with businesses is to achieve impact through the Global Development Alliances, which Dan was involved in the early days. These alliances are co-designed, co-funded, and co-managed along alongside partners such as Coca-Cola, so that both the risks and the rewards of the work are shared. Over the past 15 years, we've built more than 1,500 of these alliances with more than 3,500 organizations, leveraging more than $18 billion in funds outside of U.S. government funding from private sector sources and public sources. Another tool is our Development Credit Authority, which allows USAID to use partial credit guarantees to share risks and unlock investment in sectors that are important for development. 
Through this effort, we used $185 million of taxpayer funds to mobilize more than $3.9 billion in credit for three, working through 340 financial institutions in 74 countries. And now, having expanded the use of those, we've begun to mobilize entire coalitions of private sector partners to make large-scale progress and address, address challenges at the systems level through initiatives that all four of you have uh, supported so, so much, things like Power Africa and Feed the Future. For example, more than $10 billion in commitments to invest in agricultural-related projects from more than 200 African and international businesses were secured in exchange for governments making needed reforms or improvements. And of that, $2.3 billion has already been invested. Um, and as a sign of our commitment to this, we've also established an Office of Private Capital Microenterprise to help systematize this and move this more broadly. So while we've made a great deal of progress in the partnerships writ, writ large, we think there's more to do, there's more opportunities to do. We have to continue to highlight the success, but we have to be honest about the challenges we face. I thank you very much for the opportunity to testify this afternoon, and I look forward to all of your questions. Thank you, Mr. Prestel. Um, <clears throat> now we'll turn to Daniel Rundee. Mr. Rundee serves as the Director of the Project on Prosperity and Development and holds the William A. Schreier Chair of Global Analysis at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS. Previously, he led the Foundations Unit for the Department of Partnerships and Advisory Service Operations at the International Finance Corporation. His work there facilitated and supported over $20 million in new funding through partnerships with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, Kauffman Foundation, and Visa International, among other global private and corporate foundations. Previously, Mr. Rundee was Director of Office of Global Development Alliances at the U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID. His efforts there leveraged $4.8 billion through 100 direct alliances and 300 other, others through training and technical assistance. Mr. Rundee, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's an uh, honor and privilege to be here to speak before this committee. Uh, I speak before you as someone who's written a series of studies on this topic and has worked on these issues for a long time. Uh, I have three main points for the committee. The first is that this is not your grandparents' developing world, that it's richer, freer, and more capable. And that second, the way in which we, when I mean we, the West, donors, think tankers, policymakers, think about how development happens, we need to think differently about it and, and include a much more central role for both the private sector, the for-profit private sector, and host country governments because of, because of these changes. And then third, the U.S. government and others are adapting to this changed world, but we need to go yet farther so that our limited resources can go farther. Um, and so my, my bumper sticker would be that we have to think of the United States and other aid donors as not the largest wallet in the room, but the most catalytic wallet in the room. So there's a, still a very important role for foreign assistance. It matters, but we have to think of it in a different way, and we have to change our mindset around it. Um, and if, So let me start with this issue about the world has changed, and it's not our grandparents' developing world. So if you look at a whole series of measures, many of the countries that make up the developing world, let's say there are 100 of them, about 80 of them are on a path to being wealthier, freer, healthier, and more capable of paying for their own health, they're more uh, paying for their, their own education, and other public goods that development assistance provides. Um, 
but it's also important to note something else that's happened. Increasingly, many countries uh, are able to collect a lot more taxes. Uh, Eric Postal and AID have done a lot of work on this, uh, but that uh, there's a lot more taxes, what the fancy term in our business is called domestic resource mobilization. I wrote a report on this. If you have trouble sleeping at night, you can read my report on taxes and development, but it's actually very, very important, and it's a, much, it's a huge force of change. So at the same time, I want to highlight one thing. I do think there are still 20 or so, these so-called bottom billion countries that are really poor, that are fragile and weak states. We're still going to have to use a traditional mindset of traditional assistance or sort of U.S. government, ODA, leading, leading on sort of these sorts of problems. I also think there's certain kinds of global challenges, whether they're pandemics like Ebola or Zika, where the United States is going to have to lead. We're going to have to use our foreign assistance laws, and we're going to have to lead in that way, and where it's... It's perhaps, there are roles for partnerships, but it's much more the, the U.S. government continues to need to have a central role. Okay. Um, as a result of these changes, um, the U, if you think about the way the U.S. has in, it changed its engagement, if you look at in the 1960s, 70% of the resources from the United States to the developing world was foreign assistance. Today, it's something like 10%. You both have, have cited these statistics. Um, but the problem is the following, that the systems, procurement, human resources, incentives, and even our founding legislation were set up in an earlier, different era. The mindset from the Marshall Plan through the 1980s operated as if the United States or the World Bank or the IMF could centrally plan the development of these poor countries. And it's understandable because of these statistics that I've mentioned. So it's not a, it's not a critique of a past era. It's just it, we, just, we need to adopt and make, evolve and, and adapt. Um, so, as a result of this, the, the role of foreign assistance needs to change. Um, foreign assistance can share financial risk. It can, AID and other agencies like the World Bank can convene. They can beta test. They can take risks. They can also put forward glue money uh, or help force certain kinds of difficult policy conversations. AID and others offer world-class and often unique capacities and technical and program design expertise. Um, and um, so I think they're going to have to, though, work even more closely with these larger forces that are at their fore. And th these forces, by that I mean taxes in developing countries, foreign direct investment, local capital markets, um, and so, because these are, these are much larger forces. Uh, and they dwarf uh, uh, ODA, or development dollars. The, the other thing is, um, and so I think as we think about this change landscape, uh, want to think about how we work more closely with the private sector. Uh, we certainly work in partnership, and Eric has refer referenced that. I want to just sig signify that public-private partnerships are not a Republican thing or a Democratic thing. Secretary Powell and my friend Andrew Natsios, when he was the head of AID, helped support getting that off the ground. And then Secretary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, worked very hard to in in evangelize on partnerships and operated in a, in a multi-sector partnership way. Uh, USAID has built partnerships with some of the best country, companies in the, in the world, including Coca-Cola, Chevron, Walmart. Uh, and they've been able to, the partnerships have allowed uh, AID to tap into supply chains, the ability to foreign direct investment, technology, and standards. Let me just take 30 more seconds if I could, Mr. Chair. So if, what, what would I do in terms of what other things could we do to do more around this sector? I would, I would think about a couple of things, making, focusing on broad-based growth as a central organizing principle for U.S. development policy. I think we need to do yet further align U.S. development instruments with the private sector. 
There are some specialized agencies and instruments that could use a little bit more money. I think U.S. Trade and Development Agency is a great agency. I'd, I'd double their budget. I think Lee Zak is one of the best leaders in the Obama administration. That's a great agency. I'd increase OPIC's combined statutory ceiling for financing and risk insurance and allow OPIC to retain some of its profits. Um, I would also uh, further emphasize partnerships at aid and ensuring flexibility to create them. Um, uh, there's been a lot of progress there, but they have a lot of things, there's a lot of workarounds that are required. And finally, uh, we need to continue to shift the operational culture of U.S. government agencies towards private sector engagement. Uh, with that, I'll cede my time. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Well, thank you. We'll look forward to following up on some of that. It's sure. very interesting. Um, our final witness today is Mr. Michael Goldsman of the Coca-Cola Company. Welcome. Um, Mr. Goldsman has been with the Coca-Cola Coca-Cola Company since 1997, where he has held a number of roles. He worked for more than a decade on international public policy and trade policy in Coke's DC office. He worked in Hong Kong for the company's Asia Public Affairs Department. And from 2009 to 2012, he served as the Director of Public Affairs and Communications for the Middle East and North Africa business units, responsible for 33 countries. In 2012, he was named Vice President of International Government Relations and Public Affairs. Prior to joining Coca-Cola, he worked in France with U.S. Ambassador Pamela Harriman. Mr. Goldsman, we look forward to your testimony and welcome. Thank you very much, Chairman Perdue and Ranking Member Kane. I'm really delighted to be here, and as you mentioned, I did work in the field for both Coca-Cola as well here uh, in the United States, and so I've seen the benefits of public-private partnerships firsthand. As our CEO, Mutar Kent, likes to say, really the best and most efficient and sustainable way to address some of the global challenges that uh, our, our societies face is through a golden triangle partnership model, bringing together the expertise of both government, business, and civil society. And the Coca-Cola Company has been pleased and proud to be a partner with the U.S. government for many years, including the U.S. Department of State and USAID specifically. In my written testimony, I mentioned three specific partnerships, Project Last Mile, the work we do with USAID, the Global Fund, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, our Water and Development Alliance with USAID, and the Coca-Cola Middle East and North Africa Scholars Program that is in its fifth year of partnership with the US Department of State. In order to maybe give you a little better understanding of the true impact that these public-private partnerships can have, I thought I would just talk specifically about one of the programs, about Project Last Mile. As I'm sure all you know as background, the Global Fund was created in 2002 because the global community decided that we needed to help developing countries with the money they needed to purchase the critical medicines to treat HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. The U.S. government and other major governments were the biggest donors and provided massive funding to these countries to purchase the needed medications. And through Project Last Mile, we are ensuring that these medications truly reach the last mile. We are leveraging Coca-Cola's supply, distribution, and marketing expertise to help build capability in African ministries of health so they can do their job better. For example, we are using Coca-Cola's route-to-market expertise to help governments think about the most effective and efficient distribution models. We are benchmarking Coca-Cola's best practices for tracking how we measure our beverages that are out of stock and helping governments think how they measure and create better systems to track out of stocks of these critical medicines. 
we are sharing our guidelines for how we repair and maintain our stock of refrigerators in the market that cool our beverages and to help the governments do the same thing for their refrigerators that take care of the vaccines. And we are sharing our human resource systems and our marketing expertise similarly with the governments. So what impact has all of this work had? When we started Project Last Mile at the beginning, out of stocks in Tanzania, one out of two times that you went to your local clinic, your medicine was not available. Today, eight out of 10 times that you go there, your medicine is available. When, before we started, it took 30 days for a clinic to be resupplied with medicine that was out of stock. Today, it takes five days. Before, there were no individual objectives for ministry employees. And today, using Coca-Cola's performance management system, all ministry employees have individual performance objectives. And this allows the ministry to develop incentive programs to incentivize better performance. In terms of third-party suppliers that often are the distributors for many governments, before there was no, in Mozambique, there was no third-party contract management system. And now using the system that Coca-Cola partnered for our use of third-party contractors, the ministry has a benchmark for doing that and is able to measure what they are paying against other private sector actors. And finally, in terms of refrigeration, prior to us going in to work with the ministry in Ghana, they were using 80 types of refrigerators and had high rates of breakdown for their refrigeration systems. Coca-Cola uses less than 10, does preventive maintenance on all of its refrigerators, and therefore we've been able to help them create a benchmark for how they could improve their refrigerator uptime. All of this means that together, USAID, the Global Fund, and Coca-Cola are building capability within African governments and maximizing the spending that the US government is already allocating by making that spending more efficient, using the latest private sector models for distribution, supply chain efficiency, and to ensure a steady supply of all of these critical medicines. I'm happy to talk about the other partnerships later on and answer any of your questions. Thank you. Well, thanks to all three of you. Uh, in light of the time, I'm going to be very brief. And my, I'll just have one question now and defer the rest uh, until later and make sure uh, the other members get a chance to, uh, to ask their questions before the vote. Um, you know, today we've got a, a global situation that's unlike any time in my lifetime, maybe in the history of the world, with 65 million people somewhere in the world having lost their home. And they're wandering around somewhere. Uh, you know, a few months ago, a few of us have made, and all of us have made trips to visit with re these refugees and so forth, but this is not gonna go away. And even if we could stop the fighting today, and let's take Syria as an example, what would these people go home to? And so I think you've got a growing third class of developing country, if you will. You've got the first class that's sort of developing and it's richer and freer, as you said. And then there's this second tier that's just getting started and, and, and you've gotta be kind of traditional in that approach, you said. And now there's, a, there's, this, there's this third that possibly was a developed country has been torn about by war. I'd like all three of you from your different perspectives, uh, you got a, a, a private, um, player here, a very big one in Coca-Cola that can represent the other privates and two great players from the, the state uh, participation. How can we look at that in, in, in this PPP model to come up with a, a 
possibly a Marshall Plan, if you will, for the 21st century relative to some of these countries in the Middle East and now in Sub-Saharan Africa where we've got some failed states. Uh, Senator Kuhn spent a lot of time, has spent a lot of time in Africa, can speak to this later too. But I'm interested in your feedback about what, how we should be thinking about it legislatively up here relative to how we can help these, the PPP model. Can it be a player in this new generation of need? Thank you for your question, Senator. Uh, for my comments, I, I would say that one thing that we've learned in some of the other post-crisis countries is that there's a whole series of stages to this. Um, immediately after uh, a terrible tragedy like this, we've seen that um, big multinational investors may be more conservative and be you know, cautious and say, I don't know if it's time yet. And the first people we see going in to make investments and help rebuild the country are often the diaspora. So one wants to have tools that can encourage them because they often uh, have connections, family connections even in the country, and we, we've seen this in a number of cases. Then as time goes by, there's more evolution to maybe regional players, and you see certain sectors come in sooner than others. For instance, mobile phone companies came in much earlier to Afghanistan than certain other people because you can imagine the risk to build a power plant with a 20-year payback versus the phones. So you've got to we've got to have flexible tools tools. In the very early days, it, we have to be realistic about um, who's going to come and in what quantities, and, and then but have tools to support them and try to accelerate them moving in. But if we're talking the scale of Syria, um, th that's going to require a lot of work by a lot of us because the scale of that is sadly unimaginable almost. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you for that very important question. I think that is a, a very good way to classify the, the problems. I think my, I think our comments sort of excluded this, this the global refugee crisis, the largest since World War II. There's a whole series of geostrategic and security reasons why we have the global refugee crisis. I would say a couple, we've done several things on this. We hosted a conference on this a couple of months ago, and we're going to be coming out with a report looking at the northern triangle of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And because I think the, the U.S. Congress has been very generous in making available additional monies to look at look at that, and I think it's also part of the global refugee crisis. So, my my points, uh, I'll start with what what we ought to do, and then how do you bring in other partners? I I think the most important thing is to, is fund the uh, fund the emergency. I think we're underfunding some of the the emergency resources that are needed there. Certainly manage the migration uh, and have a more managed migration process. I think where you have aid dollars, where you can make a difference, but it takes a long time, in addition to the emergency side, is the issue of what the so-called root causes or the push factors. Uh, and I, I'll get back to that in a second. And I think within a fourth point would be, okay, within camps and within sort of in, in between, uh, you, the, you've seen some attempts at, at trying to either generating jobs programs or trying to op operate some sort of private sector activities in these migration camps. I think that's a... That's, a, that's an intermediate sort of a solution. But I, I think the most important thing we, we should be thinking about is, is how do we deal with the push factors? None of the push factors or these root causes are solvable on a 12-month timeline or a 36-month timeline. They require political will. Um, and the sorts of things, if you, I'll, I'll use the Northern Triangle as an example because I've been to all three of those countries on separate trips in the last three months. Um, if you ask them, they're leaving because of security issues, their personal security or they're leaving because of economic opportunity issues. And so there is a role for the private sector in that in terms of things like we need to make it easier for businesses to start and operate in those countries. 
Uh, we, we need uh, those companies to participate and actually pay taxes. They have some of the lowest tax uh, paying in the, in the world, and tax rates and a percentage of, of GNP. Um, there's also terrible corruption, and so we need an improvement in making sure that there's, it's attractive to operate as a business in those countries so they can hire people uh, as well as have governments that actually deliver, make people feel safe and aren't corrupt and, and also uh, have people, you know, reestablish re the, the social contract in those countries. That's easy to say in the Northern Triangle and throw on a, a, a conflict in some other parts of the world and it makes it even worse. I think I would just add, um, if we look at some of the other, for example, the recent tragedies and the crisis around Ebola, I think that offers us another opportunity to look at the opportunities for more partnership. Certainly there's a need for greater coordination and creating mechanisms that actually empower the local governments to be the ones doing that coordination. Coca-Cola did a lot in, with its local businesses in each of the Ebola countries, and we needed to be able to to really funnel in and use that crisis as a way of creating capability in the local government to manage the next crisis that will come, as opposed to just coming in and doing it for them. I think uh, the other thing is, is really creating that opportunity for flexibility in the partnership so that all kinds of actors, as my colleagues have said, can come in and contribute to that in a way that it really goes to their expertise and their ability to contribute, and we, we don't always, we don't always have the mechanism for, for people to do that. Thank you. <clears throat> we'll move to the ranking member now. If I could, Mr. Chair, I'd like to defer my questions and swap places with Senator Coons for Absolutely. purposes of time. Thank you, Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane. Thank you for convening the hearing, and thank you for your great work in this area. And, uh, to my good friend, Senator Isaacson. Uh, I'll just start, uh, Mr. Goldsman, by saying that I think I first visited a Coca-Cola project, a water purity project in the field at the instigation of my good friend, Senator Isaacson, when we were in West Africa together five years ago. Um, and I got a chance to see in uh, 2014 um, the work you did and many others did from the private sector in the response to Ebola in Liberia and was genuinely impressed and grateful for the work of many in the private sector in the response to that particular crisis. Let me ask three brief questions, if I might, and uh, if the other two members of the panel might give whatever response you choose to to these. First, I'm interested in um, how USAID's Office of Private Capital and Microenterprise uh, and its approach to working with the private sector um, has performed so well so far and whether uh, the ways in which it has worked well might be used as a model uh, for partnering with the private sector in solving other development challenges. Um, second, a question about OPIC and whether a, an empowered OPIC or a U.S. Development Finance Corporation might make a, a bigger difference in deploying private capital. Uh, and last, uh, Mr. Goldsman, you mentioned engaging the diaspora is often a, a, an important uh, early stage uh, response mechanism where there's uh, countries that are genuinely torn apart uh, by violence, as uh, the chairman had suggested. I just, any further thoughts on how to more effectively engage the diaspora? And given the press of time, if you'd just keep your answers concise, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator King. Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, the private capital group, the staff of that came out of prior efforts. They literally were the folks that worked on the Feed the Future commitments and the Power Africa commitments. So basically what they're trying to do now is to work with the rest of the agency to take this uh, to other sectors and other country teams and things like that. So it's, it's early days, but um, they're making progress either on trying to develop some innovative specific transactions, like there's one they've been working 
on in solar energy, as well as more sectoral-wide things. Like if you talk to African entrepreneurs, they will agree that among the most conservative investors out there are African pension funds due to some uh, local rules and regulations in those countries. So um, the, that office is looking to try to work with all those pension funds, marry it up with um, United States experts to try to unlock some of that. It's another source of capital. And then I'll just um, briefly say that um, uh, we are very supportive of both OPIC and our development credit authority um, having a little more freedom to fly, as it were. It's amazing how both of them, they have special OE accounts, which the profits from the operations will repay, and yet they don't have the flexibility to add even three or four more people that can let them do more projects. So there's some really simple fixes, and we're really supportive of our colleagues at OPIC as well as we see the same thing in DCA. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Those are really, thank you very much, Senator. Um, just let me start with the issue of OPIC. Um, I've done a lot of work on development finance. I've worked at a development finance institution. I've had past lives. I, I would just say a couple things. If you look at the growth of development finance investments catalyzed is growing at, if you go back to the year 2000 to, to now, if you look at all the different uh, inter, uh, donor countries that have DFIs like OPIC, the amount of investments have increased seven times, so from $10 billion to about $77 billion. And in the same period, ODA, with you know, traditional development assistance, mainly through grants and loans, has gone from about $60 billion to $130 billion. So it's increased two times. So my thesis is that sometime in the near future, those lines are going to cross. So OPIC and DFIs are going to be, because of this changed world we're talking about, and including things like the Development Credit Authority or the Office of Private Capital, these are increasingly going to be important parts of how the United States is engages with the world. Um, I will also make a plug. I think Elizabeth Littlefield is a great leader of OPIC. I'm sorry, I, I, I will say that for the record. But I think I think I'll agree. And I think that we need. Um, I do think though that the, she, her biggest constraint is FTEs, meaning bodies. She needs. She's got something like 200 bodies. I think she has. She had to fight to get one person overseas. Um, I do think that OPIC more or less is the development finance institution. I, I think there's some great ideas from some of my colleagues and other think tanks about a, a development finance bank. Um, it, that, may be a, a, that may be hard to do, but I think if you could do, get at this in, in pieces and move at this incrementally, so increase the number of, of, of FTEs, allow OPIC to either you know, ha have some additional flexibility. The, the one that's often talked about is equity authority. Uh, um, it's a longer conversation. But I would say, it, given the way the world is going, we're going to want to use instruments that work more closely with foreign direct investment. I also think in an era with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, I think there's a before and after the AIIB. And so I think we have to think more strategically about how we offer developing countries in this first category that the Senator was talking about in terms of these countries that are growing. What they want from us oftentimes is infrastructure. And so I think we're going to have to think differently about infrastructure. That means TDA, that means OPIC, um, and it means certain kinds of technical assistance as well from, from AID. So we're going to have to think strategically about it. So I think OPIC should be bigger uh, and, is going to, and is going to be bigger because that's the way the world is going. 
The only thing I would add is with regard to your last question about engaging the diaspora, I just would note Coca-Cola is a supporter of a network called the Global Shapers that's part of the World Economic Forum. It's for the under 30 crowd. And if we look at what happened after the Nepal earthquake or after uh, the earthquake in Ecuador earlier this year, those groups were mobilized in their local municipal hubs very quickly. So I think there's an opportunity to really use technology and the crowdfunding work that's already going on and to try to tap into that and maybe help governments create the resources and the platforms that allow the diaspora community to really immediately plug in both with their funding and expertise in the event of such a, a crisis. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think the record should reflect that when Coca-Cola shows up, all of Georgia senators show up. <laughs> With all due respect, Mr. Postel and Mr. Rundy, that's one of the main reasons both of us came. <laughs> you know, I'm one of those people that got elected to the United States Senate thinking I could balance the budget and end the deficit by just doing away with foreign assistance. I beat my chest on that message in my campaigns, and I came up here and realized that foreign assistance was less than eight-tenths of one percent of discretionary appropriation. Yet it was 100% of the opportunity to grow America's markets around the world for our companies like Coca-Cola and others. And I've seen the great difference foreign investment can make, and I think USAID does an unbelievably phenomenal job for our country and for the world. And I'm proud to be a big supporter of what you do, Mr. Postel. But for those, in reference to what Tim Kaine said, or Senator Kane said about our interns coming to see what marvelous things, examples of marvelous things that can happen. I want to tell you a brief story about Coca-Cola and what they're doing in Africa. I took uh, Senator Coons with me. He's left, but he knows this story. But we went to a project in Ghana. I actually went to a Millennium Challenge Corporation project in Ghana. There was a giant one-acre large refrigeration system to take the shelf life of a pineapple from seven days to seven weeks, which opened a new marketplace for the pineapples grown in Ghana. But we also learned that 80% of Africa doesn't have potable water and no, no infrastructure to get potable water there. And Coca-Cola Company started a program and you correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Goldsman, but what they do at Coca-Cola is they'll go find a village that needs water and doesn't have a source of clean water. This particular village we went to, they had a stream running through it that was the nastiest thing I've ever seen. Coke took the water out of that stream, put it through a, 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 a ultraviolet ray system, including sand filtration, to purify that water in a self-contained system. And then people, the residents in the village would pay seven cents a day for five gallons of water. So Coca-Cola created clean water, seven cents a day cost, and the village all of a sudden they had nothing, had water and had enterprise growing. They became consumers of products that we were shipping over there. And people asked me, well, why the seven cents? Why don't you just give them the water? Well, seven cents was the sustainability cost so they could maintain that plant for years to come. And I've been back to that site since you saw the picture, Mr. Goldsman, when I went there five years ago. That plant is still working, still operating. It's maintained by the revenue at seven cents a day, paid by the villagers who come and get their five gallons worth of water. And that's what, that's what you can do with American ingenuity and the investment of the private sector to make a demonstration project that doesn't give somebody something, but it's kind of like the, the parable of the fish. You know, if you give a man a fish, he can eat for a day. If you teach him to fish, he can eat for a lifetime. Well, that's what Coca-Cola is doing all over North Africa when it comes to water. And it's really a great tribute to you and your company and what you're doing. I've been proud to have been there and drank that water and as I told you live to tell this tell about it because when I saw the when I saw the water going in that sand system I said I ain't drinking that then they had a newspaper guy and a USAID guy with a camera there and I said well I better drink it or a Coca-Cola <laughs> or Mutar Kennel find out about it I drank the water and coons and I tit and the only thing about the water was it was a little bit flat but it was safe and good as it could be 
We enjoyed it that day, and we appreciate the investment that y'all are making very much. And as far as USAID is concerned, for America's business and America's place in the world, our job is to be a catalyst for countries that don't have what we have, to be able to build the infrastructure to get what we have, not because we give it to them, but because we show them a way, because we make a down payment on an investment in those countries in return for getting them to correct some of their ways. You know, Millennium, Millennium Challenge Corporation has done one great thing in Africa, aside from putting in a lot of infrastructure. It's ending corruption in Swaziland, it's ending corruption in Benin, it's ending corruption in Ghana, because one of the predicates of getting a Millennium Challenge contract is to get out of the business of corruption, which is the biggest single business problem Africa has. So not only is it good to make investments in down payments, but it's also good for that money to be a catalyst for people to do the right thing. So I want to compliment you on what you do, Mr. Postel and Mr. Grundy and Mr. Goldsman. Tell Mutar I bragged about Coca-Cola when you go back. And I don't have any questions, but you, any comments you want to make is welcome. I just wanted to thank you for that. We, we are building these basically mini water treatment plants in communities around the continent. And they, they, they sell the water because, as you say, it's meant to be able to cover the maintenance and operation costs. And some of those centers are selling more than a million liters a month. So it is absolutely going to the greater sustainability of the village. And you get great stories coming out that the local hairdresser says she now goes and buys the water from the water treatment plant because her customers are actually willing to pay more to have their hair washed with clean water. Thank you, sir. Um, Senator, thank you very much for your uh, kind comments and your tremendous support, including co-sponsoring the Global Food Security Act and the Global Development Lab. We really appreciate your support as well as other members. Uh, a couple of things. Um, your description of the Coca-Cola pro uh, projects is uh, completely aligns with our views. That's why we've done 43 projects with the Coca-Cola company. You heard the tremendous description of their capabilities, and this is what we're trying to tap into, um, all this expertise, and to, to really get even bigger results, because notwithstanding the fact that we're the biggest single bilateral donor, we're, there's still lots, uh, literally millions of people that aren't being helped, whose problems we have to help them solve for themselves, as you said, teach them how to fish, um, and, and so these partnerships are, are very key to that, whether, whether it's in water, where they're the biggest single water user on the planet, as you know, to, to energy, where we've got 600 million Amer Africans who don't have power, but we have a lot of power companies who could do it if we remove the obstacles. So there's lots to do, build on and, and do more of. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. Um, 19 of 20 of our biggest trading partners were once aid recipients, so I agree. It's, it's enlightened, it's enlightened self-interest. And uh, foreign assistance is part of um, ensuring America's place in the world. I agree with you, Senator. And I, I think one of the things that we have to be aware of, though, is in these developing countries, what they often want is our innovation and our technology. That's not necessarily in the U.S. government. That's in fine American companies. And so by partnering, we can bring what they really want, which is this innovation and technology. And the other thing I think we have to remember is that as these countries have gotten wealthier, we're also, you know, I think we have to be aware that they, they can take their business in some ways down the street to China, I think. And so I think we have to be aware that we have a, we have a, in, in essence, a, an emerged or an emerging geostrategic soft power competitor. I know that's a lot of words, but I think, think you guys know what I mean. I think they can take their business to the Chinese. So. What we have that other folks don't have is our innovation and our technology, and that's what they want, that they want 
any country you, I, I go to in the world, whether they're our friend or they're not necessarily our friend, they covet that. They covet our innovation and our technology, and that's housed in American businesses. Thank you. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. Um, I want to ask you about a part of the world. Mr. Rundy, you talked about the Northern Triangle, because I want to use this as kind of an example and put on your you know, creativity hat with respect to PPP possibilities. And I'm going to ask the question for the record, too, so if you think about it after and you have more thoughts. Um, the President asked for a billion-dollar investment in the Northern Triangle last year in, in Congress thanks really to the Senate, because we put 750 in and the House did not, but we conferenced it at 750. So we're making an investment in, in the three countries of the Northern Triangle. The President has asked that that be repeated. We're seeing the, you know, in these neighboring countries that we're very closely connected to, a lot of folks from these areas, their families live here. We're seeing the unaccompanied minor outflow to our uh, country. We're seeing levels of violence driven to significant degree by the U.S. demand for illegal drugs that puts cash into these economies and kind of corrupts them. We're seeing rule of law problems. We're seeing uh, economic opportunity challenges. So we're seeing a lot of different challenges. These are three nations that to, to combined have a population of about 30 million. It's about the size of Texas, a little bit big, bigger than the size of Texas from a population standpoint. Um, if we are on a path where we might, over the course of multiple years, make an investment of this kind, we want the metrics to be right. Obviously, we would like to expand the power of the investment by not just having it be the 750, but having uh, an appropriate coordination with NGO partners, with government spending in those three um, nations, with private investment, with the private individuals in those own nations who often decide to invest their monies elsewhere because the security situation at home isn't so great, bringing those monies back and investing them at home. So from a kind of a public-private partnership standpoint, I'd love your advice on how we could take an investment of the size that we're making and, uh, and leverage it and expand it through using this technique. And I would love each of you to address it. Mr. Rundy, since you mentioned the Northern Triangle, Thank why don't you. we start with you? Well, I know it's a region center close to your heart. I know you, yeah. did, you did public service there. And uh, uh, I think we have an interconnected future with the Northern Triangle. And I think that it's, I think it was very important that the U.S. Congress, including the U.S. Senate, uh, put forward this additional money because I think ultimately this is not going to be solved just on our border. We can't, it, it can't just be about how we respond when they show up at our border. It has to be about dealing with the root causes. Uh, but I think we have to have an honest conversation about the fact that if we want to fix these problems, because we have had a long relationship with these countries, and sometimes we've had an ADD relationship. We've only responded when there's been a crisis. If we're going to do this, we have to think of this in the paradigm of like a plan Columbia. And I think that's been a good shorthand in, Pol in Washington to think of it as a plan Columbia for the Northern Triangle. I also visited Columbia, and we're going to be doing, releasing a report in October, and I'm hoping you, Senator, will come and be a keynote speaker at it because I know it's, it's important to you. So I'll, I'm going to come back to your staff about that. But I, but I think we need to make a long-term long commitment. This is a 15-year project. If you look at what happened in Columbia, that was a 15-year project. We're going to need a lot of political will in those three countries. Uh, we do not have, for the record, I do not believe we have an Alvaro Uribe or a President Santos in any of those three countries. They are good. Some of them are, there's some capable governments. There are some new governments. They're trying. There's very active civil society, as you know, that they've made changes in those three countries. Each of the countries are slightly different. It's hard to get to have a Plan Colombia in three different countries instead of one. <clears throat> um, I do think. 
<clears throat> I think you've identified the problems. If you ask the children when they leave, they say, my biggest concern, at least in the countries of Honduras and El Salvador, is security. In the case of Guatemala, it's jobs. So I think we need to deal with both jobs and we need to deal with security. <clears throat> I do think um, there's several things we have to be thinking about. Uh, you know, in parts of these countries, the state has never existed, as you all well know, Senator. I mean, I think there are parts of the Western Highlands of Guatemala that's never seen, a, that you can't go to a high school degree there. You don't have a police station, you don't have a hospital, you have roads. So, but I, so I think, I do think one of the things we're gonna put in our report is we need to come centralize among the, the House and the Senate and the executive branch um, a set of metrics that we can all agree on. I think it's five or six metrics. Certainly the first one is uh, unaccompanied minors. How are we doing? Are people showing up at our border? I think the second is what are we doing about a murder rate? Are we, can we get those murder rates down? Because they're some of the most dangerous places in the world, as you know, Senator. Um, more dangerous than some, some combat zones that we can all think of. I think the other thing, though, very important is to have an increased economic growth rate, formal economic growth, formal economic growth, because we need people to be absorbed in the local economy and work in jobs in their own countries. And fourth, I think this is part of the social contract with companies, is about tax rates. These have some of the lowest tax collections in the, the world. I mean, it's, shame, it's scandalous. 8%, I think, in Guatemala last year. It's shameful. How, how do you pay for police? How do you pay for schools with those kind of numbers? So we're going to have to, but I think we also have to have some humility. Let me go back to we are not the largest wallet in the room, even in Central America in these three countries. I was asking, I've been looking at the numbers. If you look at the GNP of these three countries, what is the percent of GNP of the $750 million? I don't know, 0 0.1%, 0 0.2%, 0.3% GNP. <clears throat> we cannot operate as if we're a couple of hairs on the tail of dog, wagging the whole, whole dog, no, without any due respect. So I think we need to use that money to create a compact with, comp with governments, with the private sector, with civil society. So I think we have to think about this and say, we're going to make a commitment to you, but in return, you're going to have to do some things. And one of the things, we should use that money to generate political will. We may have to put, I know that the Congress has put, tried to put some conditions on it. I know you're going to be waiting to hear from the administration about what those metrics look like. But I think, um, I think we're going to have to, to have some humility. We're going to have to take a long view. Uh, but I do think we're going to have to create almost some sort of a compact with each of these three societies. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, a couple of quick comments. We, um, we had the partnership for growth with El Salvador, and we started using this technique that MCC and USAID use, constraints to growth analysis. And what it showed was that um, there was the possibility of growth, but the biggest single inhibiting factor won't surprise you, but it was uh, violence. And even with, uh, in the private sector, it was in the way. Um, and in fact, later, as we came to work on this, and we created a, a, a partnership that had some of the richest, uh, and most entrepreneurial people in the country working alongside both governments. And you'd talk to them and you'd get at dinner after the meetings are done and you'd ask them what they're doing with their investments and you find out that they were investing in Colombia or in Virginia or in California and where they weren't investing is in that area. And th th those funds are greater than these funds that we're talking about. So what, what we see is that there's a multi-step process and we built metrics and I'm happy to come and talk offline about where we got and where we didn't get on that as a mo model. But um, we created partnerships. We have one, for instance, 
um, with, that involves Chevron, Haynes, Starbucks, and local NGOs to build um, alternative community centers and locations to work with youth to try to keep them out of the gangs. Um, and so we built, we can use some of the money to build partnerships with others to try to deal with some of the insecurity in the gangs. And as that comes down, then we can morph from that into working on pure economic growth things such as uh, Dan said, but leveraging their own money and, and just removing some of the impediments because there is a lot of money in the system if we can deal with corruption, which is a other, another whole area as well as um, uh, the insecurity. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Uh, the, the only three short things I would add to that is, you know, you, you want to set uh, if you're going to leverage the private sector in doing some of this work is you want to set some ambitious targets and you have these metrics that you're going to come up with for, for that, so that's a good first step. If you want private sector to come in, then the U.S. government also has to have predictable funding so that you, know, you can actually know that this is a multi-year commitment that a company is making and that your partner, the U.S. government, will also be there over multi-years. And then I think we need to make sure that we invest in the sufficient human resources to do the alignment up front. This is always the hardest part of any partnership, is making sure all the parties that you bring in are truly aligned on the goal that we're trying to achieve and the mechanism that we're gonna to use to achieve that goal. And that takes a lot of time and sometimes, as my colleague mentioned, you realize you are not aligned and so it can't proceed, but that investment in that time and the people to really make that work is what allows us to achieve actually the results that I talked about earlier. Thank you. Well, we're about at that hour where they're about to call the vote, but I do have uh, one other detailed question, I, I think for the record. Uh, in the testimony you had, <clears throat> I think the ratio is about two and a half to one leverage right now between private investment, public. How many U.S. corporations, let's say the Fortune 500, what, what would be a percentage of those corporations participating in these projects today. Do, do you have any idea? Does anybody have a, have a number on that? Uh, Senator, I don't have the Fortune 500, although we can get that. Um, we have um, more than 3,500 total partners par who work on the Global Development Alliances on which Dan helped pioneer. As regards the guarantees, we have um, more than 350 financial institutions with whom we're working, both um, U.S. as well as local financial institutions. And then if you go writ large on all forms of partnerships, um, it's the numbers are in the thousands. Feed the Future alone counts uh, using slightly different counting, but 4,000 different partners. And how um, do you coordinate with IMF and World Bank investments in this area? Do they partner with you at all? Um, we do partner with them uh, a lot on a lot of different spheres. Par uh, we have an MOU with them, for instance, in Power Africa, where we're coordinating uh, carefully. And um, so sometimes there's deals that might involve several different parties. They doing different things. For instance, one of the first Big Power Africa deals is um, Lake Turkana uh, Wind Project, 310 megawatts in Kenya. Um, OPIC has a big piece of that, but then there's another piece of the project that was done by the African Development Bank and uh, Norwegian Development Agency. Sometimes the deals are so big we need different people sticking to their competencies, but you put the pieces together to get the whole. Understood. Um, and I, just one last question. I, I'm interested in the ratios here. <clears throat> You're getting four to one or better ratios of, of leverage off private 
partnerships with regard to health and education projects. But some of the others, and I was surprised at this, water and sanitation and energy are, um, are lower, less than two. Uh, and I would have thought, you know, Lee Kuan Yew, that, that's counterintuitive to me. Um, and I, I wonder if there's a structural issue there or what. I mean, Lee Kuan Yew talked about the four drivers of economic growth in the developing world, right, between cheap power, potable water, educated workforce, and uh, great infrastructure. Well, these are two of the great fundamentals here, water and power, and I'm, I'm really kind of surprised. Is that just an anomaly, or is there something structural there? Thank you for your question, Senator. Um, on the energy strikes me as odd as well, and it's certainly at odds with what power we're Africa. seeing on Power Africa. Yeah, seven so to one. Or we can dive deeper into that. Yeah, that, um, that it might be, be apples and oranges. The other sectors don't surprise me, Senator, because actually, um, you know, not all sectors are going to be equally ripe for partnership with the private sector. I mean, obviously, uh, certain countries are, fragile states are, but um, democracy rights and governance type work is less ripe for that kind of partnership. Water, um, it, it, with uh, the exception of Coca-Cola and a few others, we, as a total volume, for instance, in sanitation, we don't see as many public-private partnerships because it doesn't align with the core business interests. So it, there are definitely um, significant differences across sectors, both uh, leverage, but also just the total volume of engagement. Um, the, the number one asked in the private sector, um, which we have trouble meeting because of all the stovepipes of funding, is workforce development, for instance. That's in their sweet spot. Whereas, you know, one of our big efforts is to just to get kids to learn how to read. Mm -hmm. But for a company, that's 20 years from when you're working with them to that person becomes a member of the workforce. It's just not got the right return for them to g get engaged. So there are definitely the dis discrepancies. Understood. Unless you have anything else, I, I really appreciate this. We've learned a lot today. I think we've uh, exposed uh, quite a bit of the success that you've had and some of the challenges, but I want to thank the witnesses. Thank you for your testimony and for all your work. It's a great endeavor. The record will remain open until Friday to close of business for, the, for anybody up here that wishes to uh, submit a question. I, I would love for you to respond to that. And with that, we stand adjourned. Thank you, gentlemen.